Good morning. Um, I am in the midst, or just started a uh, sabbatical, uh, and um, in August that we are, got an apartment in New York City and spending a good part of the month there and part of the month here, and um, I, I it, it, really enjoying it. I'm doing a lot of reading, which oddly is what I was doing before I left. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, but it's awesome. Tonight, I'm pretty excited about this to our lecture event. Um, it'll start here tonight at 6.30. Um, I'm digging into how all of us, uh, including our friends, our family, co-workers, presidential candidates, everybody, um, we're influenced by forces within us and around us and how to be discerning about that. Uh, we'll be talking about the world around us, the impulses of flesh, the demonic. We're going to talk about the demonic and how that uh, the scriptures kind of imagine that. Um, I, when we were doing the thing, I sort of imagined that when we announced it to you that, that it would be with some deep-throated guy like, a, you know, one of the television ads, you know, so I'm saying something like, flesh, blood, principalities, sons of the damned coming into the light or something, you know. And, and, and they said I had to see navigating towards a vibrant spirituality. So... <laughs> So those of you that are 40-something Christian women who are comfortable with things that are sounding a little dark, that's for you. The rest of you, it's something much darker, right? <laughs> We're talking about spiritual warfare. Right? All right, so today's uh, text from the lectionary, and we do use most often the lectionary. The lectionary is a, an, a pretty ancient tool that's used by many, many churches um, that walks a congregation through the Bible every couple of years or every three years or so you get through the major kind of arcs and stories of the Bible. And so there's always an Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and the Gospels, and we can pick from them. They oftentimes kind of have a similar tone. So this is taken from this uh, week's text, the lectionary text, James chapter 5, and the reading goes, Is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So notice... He says, call for an other. Call for someone else for your life and your faith. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. So when you get others involved, it inures to your benefit. And the Lord will raise him up, and if you've even sinned, your sins will be forgiven. Interesting, right? Therefore, confess your sins to not just yourself and God. Talk to others about your issues. Pray for each other that you may be healed and he talks about this effectiveness of righteous people. The idea here is the more righteous people that jump in with you, the better life is for you, and the more faith works for you. The righteous prayer of a, of a, uh, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed. <clears throat> the heavens gave rain. The earth, earth produced its crops. My brothers... If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, again, notice the idea that even if you're kind of getting off the path, others in your life can protect you. We bring him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save him from, his, from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So let's pray just for a moment. Spirit of God, as we come to the text and as we open our hearts to these ideas, 
would you form us? Would you mess with us? Would you recalibrate us and maybe help us to see things in a way that help us say yes to the Lordship of Christ in a deeper way so that our lives are different? Thank you. New life is possible for us at any point in our lives if we can learn how to say yes to you more completely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, everybody said, <clears throat> Amen. Again, this text is calling us to think about others and how others influence our faith. We tend to think about our faith as private, and I want to talk a little bit about that. It certainly is that, and we want to celebrate that, and there are problems if you don't do that. But this text is talking about how you can call for others and their engagement with us adds power to our lives and our faith. The other readings in this particular day that we didn't read, one of them is uh, from Esther. And the story of Esther, if you recall, is a story of the Jews facing uh, annihilation. And the first thing they do is they call all of the Jews to prayer and to fasting. It was this idea that no one person was saying, don't worry, I'll handle this. But they were saying, we need each other. So the idea of others and faith, the plurality of faith, if you will, the corporateness of faith is something that brings strength to us that's different than our private initiated faith. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, the whole notion of having faith with others or expressing a corporate faith is, is a little bit opaque for we American moderns, right? I, I think one reason is because we're modern. Uh, the modern world the awakening of the individual, where each one of us can kind of determine our own destiny and, and way of life, is one of the wonderful things that emerged in the modern world. I mean, if you were born in the ancient world, you sort of were born and you thought whatever I'm supposed to be was determined by where you were born. If you were born uh, uh, under, in a butcher's family, you're going to be a butcher. A baker, you're going to be a baker. Candlestick maker, you're going to be a candlestick maker, right? So you were whatever station in life you were born, they had the sense that that was who they were supposed to be. And that, you know, um, the gods or God controlled everything and that nature kind of controlled things and the political forces controlled things. So your sense of me-ness, who I am, was more to step up and say, who am I supposed to be? Not who am I inside, subjectively. But who am I supposed to be based upon the contingencies and the pulls and the uh, influences of what is around me? Well, the modern world, people start saying, well, wait a minute. I am an individual. And a very subjective, privatized kind of notion of saying, I don't want to be a butcher. I'd rather be a baker. Right? I, I can think this through and I can make my own choices and sort of predict my own destiny or, or move toward my own destiny. There's something really cool about that, right? The problem is everything that's cool can have a bad side that's not so cool. And the bad side of that is I don't need people or I don't need God even, right? And so uh, I think that one of the problems it, when it comes to being moderns, again, is that even though there's so much good in it, there is a kind of problem in that we tend as moderns to think I can do this myself, all right? Add to that the fact that we're Americans, and I'm glad I'm an American. I tell you, you travel around the world a little bit, you'll come back and kiss the ground. America is an amazing place. I love being American. Uh, we have our issues. One of them is rabid individualism. There's sort of a mythology in the American mindset that, you know, we can pull ourselves up our own bootstraps and 
we can make it ourselves and the people who are strong don't need anybody. That's part of what makes us strong. We can make it. We're independent. We can make it in life. And that spills into our faith. There's an old Tom Hall song, and it's a real song. It's on my out, next uh, album that I'm doing. <laughs> it goes like, you've heard me sing it before, those of you that know me. <laughs> it goes like this. It goes, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. When we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. Yeah, that's us. This kind of notion that I can figure this out. I don't need anybody. That rabid individuation. That's problematic when it comes. It's wonderful in one sense because we need to own our stuff. It's problematic in the sense that we think we need to own our stuff without any help, right? That I don't need anybody uh, we're also, one of the reasons I think that us-ness, if I can make up a word, the us-ness of faith is opaque to us is because we're Protestants. I love the Protestant imagination in that it challenged the idea that's in the middle of the Middle Ages or right at the, at the height of the Middle Ages that the church was in control of spirituality, controlling it with sacraments and that kind of thing. And Martin Luther stands up and says, no, no, no. That's just nominal Christianity. If you're not personally engaged, if you're not personally trusting God, if you're not crossing the threshold of heart as an of faith as an individual, you're just a nominal Christian. Christianity demands faith and trust as an individual to God. There's something really powerful about that. So the Protestant imagination basically says, I am not going to participate in a nominal Christianity or Christianity by name only. I want the transformative kind. I want the kind of faith that when I engage with it, I'm a different person. So it's something very, very beautiful. But, you know, when, sometimes when we move in culture, we go from one ditch to the other ditch. And even though I love the fact that we have an experiential kind of faith, it ended up being extremely subjective and private. And we've made faith private. And when, when you make faith private, it becomes very limited. Why? Because you're not all that big <laughs> and all that amazing. And you only have your scope of understanding and your scope of experience and your scope of, uh, you know, view that you have. And sometimes we're so, we can make faith about my view, what I think, what I think the Bible's saying. This is what I believe. And we so reduce it that we don't understand we're actually making our micro story that's part of a bigger macro story the story. And when you make your own life and views the story, you're really limiting the story and missing something that's captured in the larger picture. So, for instance, I think our little micro lives are like, uh, I, I've got a picture here of um, some of you might recognize. It's this um, crow. It's got something in his mouth, and then there's this, this um, the fox. And when you look at that micro image that's a piece of a larger story, you can make all kinds of things up. Some of you might look at that and say, hmm, looks like the fox is trying to get that crow, maybe eat it, right? Or if you look in the crow and you see it's got something in its mouth, it's like a stick or something, maybe the crow's going to play fetch with the fox. You know, what's going on there, right? What the heck's going on? 
you come up with all kinds of ideas because you only have a micro image of a macro story. The real story behind this is Aesop's fable of the fox and the crow. And the story goes like this, that there's some kind of famine going on in the land and food is very scarce. And this fox happens to notice that this crow found some cheese. So the fox chases the crow into the forest and he sees the crow up on top and the fox tells the crow, hey, crow, I've heard you sing with amazing beauty. Now, if you've ever heard a crow sing, you know the fox is a liar. He's just flattering the crow and saying, oh, I would love to hear you sing, right? And so the crow, you know, thinks, oh, he wants to hear me sing. So he opens his mouth to sing. The cheese falls out. The fox gets the cheese and eats it. And the moral of the story is, don't listen to flattery. Now that's the macro story of this micro story. What I'd like to suggest to you is that all your life is is a micro story. Your perceptions of God, your perceptions of what he's doing in the world, your perceptions of truth. If you just grab your Bible and you go in the room and you open it up and you read it in your prayer closet and you think you're going to get the story, all you're going to do is come up with you think God is throwing sticks that you're supposed to chase. Or that, some, the, that the fox is trying to, you're going to get it mixed up. You're going to skew it. Because it's impossible for us to really see the narrative unless we realize Christianity is not just a private limited thing. That our lives must be contextualized in a larger narrative that's going on around us. That our individual view of life, it's even the Bible. Remember the text says in the Bible? That scripture is of no private interpretation. Nobody's supposed to privately interpret the Bible. And is that not what most Protestant devotion's about? <laughs> right? <laughs> At least that wasn't my life. <laughs> but so the, the, we need them. Ouch. We need the. Um... <laughs> Do you notice how gingerly I went down? But it still hurt. It's old age. It's going to leave a mark, I'm telling you right now. For about six months. It's going to, anyway, never mind. Dang. <laughs> so, so we need more of the story. In other words, we need our lives to be contextualized in us. But us isn't easy. It's hard to think. I think because us, if we embrace a kind of idea that I need you and you need me, that I need others, that, that it represents a kind of humility that eludes us. And it represents a kind of vulnerability in us that I actually say to you, I need you, that I can call for the elders or I can invite you to pray for me. I, it's one of the beautiful things I loved about uh, Francis, Pope Francis. If, if you've watched any of the story of him being in the States or if you know anything about him, he actually is a charismatic, I don't know if you knew that, but he's a tongue-talking Catholic guy. And uh, um, some of my friends know him. But anyway, the, the, the point is, is that he... One of the things I love about what he says is he leans into people and says, please pray for me. I love that. The idea, I need you. I, I can't trust me. It takes a kind of vulnerability. And in a way, it's kind of anti-American. Right? So you're going to feel a little bit like, that's a little weird. It's just going to feel a little weird for us. Uh, and, and Paul actually claims that it takes great spiritual power to be open to others and to invite them into your life. 
because it's so humble and odd feeling and, and vulnerable. He actually says in Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, in other words, the energy that you get from your connection with Jesus, if you have had any comfort in his love, so you know that power of comfort, if any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you know how it is when you fellowship with the Holy Spirit, or tenderness or compassion. He says, take all of that. Make my joy complete. Take all that encouragement. Take all that comfort. Take all the power and energy of that fellowship and be like-minded. Maintain the same love. Be one in spirit and in purpose. Don't do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should not look out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. What is he saying? Use the power of God that you experience to move into us. One of the marks of the Corinthian crew was that they kept isolating themselves from one another. And Paul said, you're so carnal. You're not very spiritual because you're trying to protect yourself. See, there's something about wanting to pull away that sometimes we think it's because we want to be more spiritual. But in reality, that pulling away really evidences the story of sin. Remember the narrative? Sin enters the human race, and the first thing they do is hide and cover. It's, and, 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 and there's something in, in this notion of pulling away and being private, and this is about, I just need to get this together and figure this out. We don't realize it's actually rooted in sin. And what's so odd about that story is when they cover up, you remember the story they're covering up? They're not covering up, it's what they're covering up. It's, they're not covering up their hands that the sin was involved with. They're not covering up their mouths which the sin was involved with. They're covering up their nakedness, the parts of themselves that were different. They didn't want to be seen in their differences. They didn't want to be pointed at. See, one of the reasons we like to make faith so private, I suggest to you, is because we're afraid of being seen. Over the past 15 years, I've fallen in love with the notion of the us-ness of our faith, the notion that us is more important than me. Our text in James is basically saying, get others involved with your faith. And so I want to give you five quick things on how to do that, little suggestions on how to do that. One is, come to church. <laughs> gather. Why? Because something happens when we gather that doesn't happen when we don't. Certainly Christ is with us everywhere we go. But he said this. He said, when two or three gathered in my name, there am I in your midst. In other words, there's something unusual about what happens when saints gather together that doesn't happen when we don't. And faith, church, this sort of thing, I was getting to the point in my life as a Protestant. Again, I love the Protestant imagination because I love the, this idea of I have to love Jesus myself and I have to respect him and honor him and worship him myself, existentially myself. Something beautiful about that. But, but the reality is, if you're not careful, it, it, it can become so private that church almost becomes like this thing that I do with other people that are living their private lives, and sometimes I don't get anything much out of it, and I don't really like the music this time, and the who's preaching this week, I don't know if I like that, and it's all about me resourcing the church. It's like the church is a commodity. I mean, do I want to go to Wendy's today, or would I rather go to... You know, it's a Chick-fil-A. You know, it's like it's this thing that we add to our, you know, kind of list of spiritual things to do. Not understanding. Church is not like that. Church is necessary for us. For our sense of understanding God's work in our lives. 
We have to be contextualized in a larger story. Hebrews 10 says, let us not give up on meeting together as the habit of some, some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's, this is where we do us things like praying together, um, declaring the creed, we believe in God, the Father Almighty. There's, this is where we do things like come to the table. I was so individuated in my Protestant life um, years ago that I actually thought I get more out of it when I do it privately. And in our tradition, we could actually do communion privately, and I'd encourage people to do that. It never dawned on me until I started studying history that the church never thought of this as a private moment. It was always a corporate moment. In fact, the very earliest liturgy that we have extant, that we actually have copies of, is from an ancient book called the Didache. It was written probably just before the New Testament started being written, about 50 CE. The first New Testament book was Galatians, about 55. And in the Didache, it actually says that the, the liturgy for this table was just as the uh, wheat was, or, the, or the grain was scattered across the mountains and brought together to make this one loaf, so you have brought all of your people together into one body. It was this kind of notion that this represents our usness. That the table itself represents us being together. That the sacrament was something we did together, never private. So this represents us, and so we come together to come to the table. Or when we say grace and peace to each other, I love what Brent said, you know, it isn't, it's so much depth to it. It's actually an intercession. It's someone praying over you. Most people don't get prayed for, they get cursed at. And this is an opportunity to look at someone and say, grace and peace, and to take it. Come, give me, give me, give me, right? (laughs) And let me give you, give me, give me, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. right. Okay, that's the first thing. Go to church. Second thing. Recognize the communion of the saints. Remember the, 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 when we say the creed? Uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy Christian church, and the communion of saints. That word communion implies that we're part of one another, that we're united on some deep level, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism that we're part of each other, everyone that is alive. Every time you run into people that don't go to this church, on some level you have to understand, they're part of us. So if you've traveled internationally much, you know how wonderful it is, if, especially if you've been gone for a while from the States. Uh, the last time this happened to me was I was in Brazil. I was there for a, over a week. And, uh, and, and toward the end, I hadn't seen one American, one person that spoke English, except, you know, well, a little bit, but, you know, nobody that's, you know, no Americans. And um, I go to the airport, and there's a couple that's sitting there. They're talking, and they're Americans. I just walked right up to them. <laughs> I was like, hi! <laughs> You're my people! <laughs> it, somehow, we, that has to be happening in us when we run into Methodists or other people of other faiths. or you know, I'm talking about other Christian faiths. You know, we, we realize we're part of each other. There's a sense of communion. This is, we, you should cultivate that. Not... Any kind of way dividing, but in some way enhancing, wondering when you see them, what is God doing in their lives? What is God doing in their community? And be interested in their lives. We should cultivate that kind of notion, the communion of saints. Not only for those that are alive, but do you know that we're part of those who have gone before? That the communion of saints means we're not only united with one another and every saint that's living, that's called the church militant because we're in the world. But we're also part of the church triumphant. That's the church of every soul that has ever trusted in God that are before God right now. That we're part of them. Hebrews says it this way, that they're a cloud of witnesses. 
around us. And the description that he uses in the book of Hebrews is it's almost like this coliseum that we're in the middle, you know, like the, like the uh, runners and the uh, athletes are down below and all those people around, that that's kind of the image, that somehow all the people that have died before us are like aware of us in some way and are like cheering us on, which means in some way they're praying for us. And we see that in the book of Revelations. The saints praying. For us, I don't know if we can ask them to pray for us, but somehow they're praying for us, right? And we see it in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and in the chapter before, he just listed a bunch of saints. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and run the race that's before us with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. And then he says a few verses later in chapter 12, you and I have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. He's actually describing the chapter or the scene in the Old Testament where they got the Ten Commandments and all that. You can read about it, all this crazy stuff that's going on with Moses and the, and the words. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it should be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. He said, we haven't come there. When we gather, here's the image. We have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. I mean, think about this. Every time we worship, this is what's going on in the background. Somehow we come in focus with those that have gone before us. And we come to Mount Zion, to the city of God. We've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The angels are aware of us. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. That was all the saints that have gone before us. We've come to them. Every time we come to the table, they're right here with us in some way. They're somehow aware of us. The usness of this. To the Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. See, this notion that, that we're part of this whole big thing, it, it helps us to get a bigger picture of what's going on and what God's doing in the world. It's us. These are the ones that we receive sacred text from. These are the ones that we received our theology from. The traditions that we embrace come from these that have gone before us and they're aware of us. So that's number two. Number three, what would enhance our usness awareness is I love to pray, come to love to pray, the us prayers like our Father who art in heaven. I don't say my father who art in heaven. I say our father. We say our father who art in heaven. It's part of a family. And give us this day our daily bread. It's, it's the notion of intercession. It's the notion that we're called to pray with each other and for each other. There's something very, very powerful about that. That's one of the reasons I love, um, part of the way I in, in, in participate in the us is, is, is praying historical written prayers. I was in a tradition where we did not pray written prayers. Most of us didn't even pray the Our Father. We thought it was just rote. We thought actually Jesus warned against it, that it was just babbling, right? And so every prayer I ever prayed, I was taught it ought to be spontaneous and just from the heart. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love spontaneous prayer. I love praying from the heart. I do that a lot. But I found out that there are written prayers, some of them very ancient, that are so beautifully articulated that I can jump on them and write them with my piety. <laughs> I can jump on them and ride them with my love for God. And it's, they're so beautiful. So, so let me give you an example. If I asked one of you guys to come up here, I prayed for the loss and said, 
you know, something like, Father, you know, we pray for the lost. We pray that you'll help us reach more people for Christ and that people will come to you and that the church will be sensitive and open and represent you well. I mean, that's a, a prayer that works. I mean, and, and different people would pray it more articulately, whatever. And, but then I run into these ancient prayers. Here's one of them. And listen to this. It's the same prayer, but said in a different way, more carefully. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. And I read a prayer like that, I say, that's a slap your mama cool prayer. I mean, isn't that a wonderful prayer, right? I mean, there's so many beautiful prayers. That's why I use the Book of Common Prayer. Google it. Get a Book of Common Prayer. There's so many beautiful prayers. And, and what's cool about it is you're praying prayers that others have contributed to. And it's like we're all praying. I know that this prayer has been prayed multiple times, and so I'm adding my voice to the chorus. It's like I'm a Packer fan. God bless the Packers. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't go there. Okay, I won't. Um, but, but, you know, I've gone to Packer games, right? And, I, and some of you have gone to games, different games. And you know how you, you become one with the crowd? Ah, you're all yelling. You're like one with the crowd. You become a fan, right? You're one with it. Somehow there's something about that. When I'm praying a prayer that's been written that I know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of saints around the world for centuries have prayed some of these prayers. And it's like we're all going, ah! <laughs> I love that prayer isn't just for me. I pray prayers that I'm not praying just for me. Like that's what the Psalms are about. If you've ever read the Psalms or prayed the Psalms, the Psalms are always the Christian prayer book. Jesus dying on the cross, you know what he does? He's praying the Psalms. And when you pray the psalm, sometimes you'll read it and you go, oh, I love this. So wonderful. So, it's just like you're right there. And then sometimes when you pray some of the psalms, you're thinking, I don't know what this is about. Right? So here's one of the psalms I prayed this week. Oh, God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased long ago, the tribe of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. So I'm praying this and I'm thinking, I don't get it. It's not going on in Edwin's life. That's me. It's not happening. See, I oftentimes just want to pray prayers that I can connect with. And in my own subjective way, it's my prayer life. And instead of recognizing, wait a minute, when I pray these prayers... I'm standing often for someone else and letting their pain hit me. Who feels dejected? Who feels abandoned? Who feels desolate? Maybe in this moment I'm uttering a voice for a mom who's fleeing with her children. Maybe her husband was killed by ISIS and they're homeless and they're rejected because they are Christians. Maybe I'm standing for someone who's on a job who feels tormented and feels they're locked in and they're not going anywhere. And where is God? And this sanctuary is desolate. Maybe I'm praying for some family 
who loves God, but somebody in the family is creating such chaos, it feels like their whole family is going to fall apart, and they don't know where God is, and their heart is crying out. So what we do when we pray these prayers is we don't do them for us. Sometimes we can completely relate and embrace it, and we feel it, and sometimes we feel nothing, but we stand, and we speak these prayers with authority, trusting God that somewhere, someone is being spoken for by us because faith is about us, not just about me. This is so sweet. Fourthly, if you want to have more usness in your faith, we need to learn to bear with each other's stories in a covenantal way. What do I mean by that? Most people think when they think about church, they say, well, I don't feel connected and I need more friends. But what they're thinking is they want friends to assuage their loneliness. They want friends with important people so they feel more important or cool people so they feel more cool. Their longing for friendship is self-love. Spiritual friendship in the context of the church is not about self-love. It's about looking at people and realizing that you, it's sacramental, that you are going to love people and engage with people because you're not trying to feel better about yourself, but because you're trying to, you believe on some level, God is saying something. He's saying something either through you to them or through them to you. And you're open in your heart. I remember uh, opening your heart looking for what God is saying and not just trying to assuage your own interests. I remember years ago, I was in Bible school in the 70s. Some of you were not here in the 70s, but uh, in the 70s. And, uh, and, and the, 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 the um, president of the school was a, really a rock star in the Christian world that I was part of. And I really wanted to be a friend with him. You know, I worked in the office, and some of my other friends actually were friends, would go to his house and stuff. And I would think, I want to go to his house too. <laughs> I want to be friends. And, and I could never connect with him. We never connected on that kind of level, even though I worked right around him. And I remember getting pretty agitated about it, and I started praying about it. God, why can't, why can't you open a door of friendship? Because I really want to be this guy's friend. And I kid you not. I'm sitting on the, I can tell you right, I remember right where I was sitting on the apartment steps of the apartment complex I lived in, and I heard in my heart, I think it was the Holy Spirit, and I heard this, don't long for friendships I don't give you, because friendships are the stuff of destiny. What if in our friendships we should do like Jesus said, when you walk into a banquet, go to the lowest place? What if we do like Paul said, that we should try to befriend the lower, move toward people that we don't necessarily want to move toward? Maybe God is in that. Maybe our longing to connect in churches is because we're such selfish twits. Instead of loving, caring, covenantal. And don't be surprised if you enter friendship this way that God doesn't give you someone that's extremely disappointing. <laughs> Do you remember Naaman the leper? The Old Testament. He's a leper. He can't get, nothing's working for him. And somebody said, I heard there's a prophet in Israel who can get you healed. Now, he is a big dude in his world. And so he goes with a whole you know, group of people, you know, in pomp and circumstance, thinking he's going to be met with pomp and circumstance and something amazing done for him in, in a way that demonstrates his greatness, appropriate to his station. 
And so he doesn't even get close to Elijah's house. Elijah sends out a servant, Gehazi. Gehazi comes up to him and says, the master said, you're supposed to go and dip yourself in the river seven times. He's livid. He is torqued. He is mad as a hornet. I don't. The river is back where I live. It's so much better than this disgusting river in Israel. I'm not going to do that. He was just torqued that he was discounted and had to do something like dip himself seven times. Why seven? Why not eight? Why not four? Why not two? I dip myself seven times. He's just, just, just mad about it. And his, one of his servants said, Master, what do you have to lose? So he goes and humbles himself and dips himself. Seven times. When he comes out the seventh time, he's completely healed. See, sometimes God asks you to do things that you think are below you, beneath you. To engage with things that you think, that's, I really wanted this. But if you want to jump into the us-ness of life, you need to decide in your heart to look at the people around you and realize in the church, the people around you should be closer to you than own family members. Covenantal. I am committed to my family. I go to Thanksgiving dinners. And if you would come and you saw how different we were and how we yell at each other about everything, you would scratch your head and say, why are these people in the same room? And the only answer you go, oh, they're family. There's no other reason. Right? Some of you have families just like that. Right? We should be more committed to each other, but we're not. We're scarcely committed because it's all about me, and I only come when... See, we have to buy into this. Okay, I need to shut up. Fifth thing, last thing. Decide by faith. The call of these texts, the text we read, James, is to invite the other into your spirituality. And the truth is, when you depend on others, you will be disappointed but you still must. The call is for you to depend on them, not that you always get helped by doing it. The call is for you to depend on them, not that you won't be disappointed. You will be disappointed. Are you kidding me? The more I get to know some people, the better I like my dog. <laughs> but the call is to move toward people. That's your call. And to do what is unto God sacramentally. The usness of our faith is better than the meness of our faith, even though both are essential. Father, as we come to the table, we're asking you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will help us recalibrate our souls to include more than our individual lives, but our us-ness. Help us to see you present with us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary, or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.